Let me tell you a story, podcast number 53. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a how truth long it You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. After Lisa Hess's reading of her long, short story, Invisible Thread, last podcast, We're back to excerpts from Treasure Island and Winds of Wyoming in this episode. We'll also treat you to a few other gems. All right, back to Treasure Island. This will be chapter 13, but I'll read the last little bit of chapter 12. I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless, and yet... By an odd train of circumstances, it was indeed through me that safety came. In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of 26 on whom we knew we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their 19. Chapter 13 is called, How My Shore Adventure Began. The appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we had made a great deal of way during the night and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low east uh, eastern coast. Gray-colored woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sandbreak in the lower lands and by many tall trees of the pine family outtopping the others, some singly, some in clumps. But the general coloring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All were strangely shaped, and the spyglass, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration, running up sheer from almost every side and then suddenly cut off at the top, like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks. The rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes, for though I was a good enough sailor when there was way on, This standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or so, above all in the morning, on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this. Perhaps it was the look of the island with its gray, melancholy woods and wild stone spires and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on the steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shore birds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought any one would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea. My heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from that first look onward, I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, 
for there was no sign of any wind, and the boats had to be got out and manned. And the ship warped three or four miles around the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats, where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering, and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat, and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. Well, he said with an oath, it's not forever. I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but their very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in, Long John stood by the steer and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in the chains got everywhere more water than was down in the chart, John never hesitated once. There's a strong scour with the ebb, he said, and this here passage has been dug out, in a manner of speaking, with a spade. We brought up just where the anchor was in the chart, about a third of a mile from each shore the mainland on one side and Skeleton Island on the other. The bottom was clean sand. The plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds wheeling and crying over the woods, but in less than a minute they were down again and all was once more silent. The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods, the trees coming right down to the high water mark, the shores mostly flat and the hilltops standing round at a distance in a sort of amphitheater one here, one there. Two little rivers, or rather two swamps, emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, and the foliage around that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness. From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, for they were quite buried among trees, and if it had not been for the chart on the companion, we might have been the first that had ever anchored there since the island arose out of the seas. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound but that of the surf booming half mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing like someone tasting a bad egg. I don't know about treasure, he said, but I'll stake my wig, there's fever here. If the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. They lay about the deck, growling together in talk. The slightest order was received with a black look, and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny. It was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger. Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice. And as, for example, no man could have shown a better. He fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to everyone. If an order were given... John would be on his crutch in an instant with the cheeriest, Aye, aye, sir, in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, he kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst.
we held a council in the cabin. Sir, said the captain, if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going in two shakes. If I don't, silver will see there's something under that, and the game's up. Now we've only got one man to rely on. And who is that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. This is a tiff. He'd soon talk him out of it if he had a chance, and what I propose to do is give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. If they none of them go, well, then we hold the cabin and God defend the right. If some go, you mark my words, sir, silver will bring them aboard again as mild as lambs. It was so decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the shore men. Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken into our confidence and received the news with less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for. And then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. My lads, said he, we've had a hot day and are all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore will hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water. You can take the gigs and as many as please may go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought they would break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed, for they all came out of their sulks in a moment and gave a cheer that started the echo in a far-away hill and sent the birds once more flying and squalling round the anchorage. The captain was too bright to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party, and I fancy it was as well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it prove that there were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose, the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders. Only some more, some less, and a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any further. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to embark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives. If six men were left by Silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship. And since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy I had slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar saying, Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down. But Silver, from the other boat, looked sharply over and called out to know if that were me, and from that moment 
I began to regret what I had done. The crews raced for the beach, but the boat I was in, having some start and being at once the lighter and the better man, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, and I had caught a branch and swung myself out and plunged into the nearest thicket, while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards behind. Jim! Jim! I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose till I could run no longer. We have some more kid chuckles for you. I'll be reading from my September-October journal notes written when Elisa was six and Toby was four. Brady was one, but I don't think he's mentioned in this batch. The September night air had turned crisp, and Elisa said, I like the smell of fresh air. She also noted that a tune played on the lower keys of the piano sounded brown to her. In the midst of rearranging bedrooms and getting out winter clothes, Toby went to find his pajamas to show Steve. He wandered back and forth between the bedrooms, back and forth, and finally he said, Where'd it go? My bedroom must be here somewhere. Elisa, while talking to me about her large drawing of herself, said, Are you staring at the picture of me, Mom? Are you thinking what a nice job I did? You're probably thinking I did a real good job on the eyes and on the nose. But you probably think the teeth are funny, don't you? (laughs) She also said I didn't look like a mom. You look like you should be a teenager in school. Of course, that made me feel good. But then she said, that Steve looked like a dad to her. Toby, at age four, had a tummy that talked to him often. It said things like, Toby, you are hungry. Or, Toby, you went to play outside. (laughs) He said that Elisa's schoolmate Halloween witch was a wild creature. And one day he had a spot of salad and was using big words like children and thee in his four-year-old vocabulary. I don't know where he got thee, except maybe from um, radio preachers, which I really don't remember having them on very often. But when he heard a preacher named Peter Popoff on the radio, And yes, that really was the man's name, Peter Popoff. Toby said, if I had a name like that, I'd talk funny too. And just before a church service started, he called loudly uh, from the other end of the pew, I want to go to somebody's house and watch their baby being born, Mom. (laughs) Who knows where that came from? Ah, He'd been sick for a while, and he was getting better, and I asked how he felt. And he said, quite a bit fine. (laughs) And one last Toby quote 
uh, Halloween evening, he did not want to come in from trick-or-treating. He wanted to go out and do some more searching. Yesterday was one of the craziest elections in American history. David Roper's wisdom may help us to get our perspectives on life back in line. And this one is titled, The Tyranny of Time. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It's Ecclesiastes 3. Shortly after they were married, our son Brian and daughter-in-law Jill backpacked their way across Europe. One evening, they found lodging in a hostel across the street from an old church with a lofty clock tower and a bell that tolled every 15 minutes. The gentle rhythm at first was soothing, but soon became grating, exactly the point Mentor is making in these 14 antitheses. 28 times the bell tolls. Time marches on, counting down the hours of our lives. Time, in ancient myth, is an old man leaning on a scythe with an hourglass in his hand, reminding us that time is running out and in due course will mow us down. A world of work and hurry and a sudden end. So much to do, so little time to do it. Back in the 60s, Pete Seeger wrote a ballad titled Turn, 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 that was based on this poem in Ecclesiastes. Seeger took the text as it is and added the last six words, I swear it's not too late. Seeger's line rhymed well with the phrase, a time to hate, but he missed the point of the poem. The author of this litany is not arguing for peace, but for transcendence. The frustrations of time point us to an existence beyond time. Put another way, time argues for eternity. Douglas Adams asks, Why were we born? Why must we die? And why do we spend so much of the intervening time looking at our digital watches? That's a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. Why do we feel the relentless pressure of time? Mentor supplies the answer. God has put eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 We are eternal creatures caught up in time, 
restless until we find a timeless purpose for our lives. Clocks and calendars point to something beyond us and push us relentlessly, inexorably toward that end. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, For me, there has always been a sense, something enormously vivid, that I was a stranger in a strange land, a visitor, not a native, a displaced person. The only ultimate disaster that can befall us, I have come to realize, is to feel ourselves at home here on earth. That's it from Jesus Rediscovered. Time marches on, reminding us that we are creatures of eternity, marking time, waiting to make heaven our home. We're reading from the last part of Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 12, and moving on into Chapter 13. Seated next to Laura in a pew near the back of the Highway Haven House of God Sanctuary, Kate watched church members greet each other and settle into their seats. The floor's creaks and groans and the welcoming smiles from the other parishioners made her feel more comfortable than she'd expected. Several people stopped to welcome her and to say hello to Laura. The word ambiance drifted through Kate's mind. Highway Haven Sanctuary exuded a wonderful, almost supernatural ambiance, in spite of its stark interior and lack of ornamentation. No stained glass windows, no statues, no cushions on the straight-back pews. Yet, the room radiated warmth and welcome. She saw a couple walk in the side doorway Dimple had used last Sunday morning. Kate closed her eyes. she came so close to attacking the sweet lady, the one who most likely provided the wild roses on the altar. She pictured Dimple patiently coaxing the thorny branches into a perfect bouquet for the Sunday service, and thanked God she hadn't harmed the elderly woman. Forgive me, Lord, she prayed. She heard music and opened her eyes. A group of musicians stood at the front of the room playing a pretty song she didn't recognize. Mike, who was picking the melody on his guitar, caught her eye. Kate shifted her gaze, determined not to let his presence divert her from worship. The simple service was surprisingly similar to those she'd experienced in prison. The people seemed to forget themselves and focus on God. When they sang her favorite song from prison days, How Great Thou Art, she could tell by the way the music swelled and the walls resonated with emotion that the other worshipers loved it as much as she did. It felt good to sing God's praises again and to be reminded that He was greater than all her problems. The singing ended and the congregation sat. Kate smirked, amused by the sound of squeaking pews. Laura leaned over. You have a beautiful voice, Kate. Kate smiled. Thanks, Laura. It's such a beautiful song. A husky man in a t-shirt and jeans stepped behind the pulpit, Bible in hand. Please turn with me to Psalm 145. So that was Pastor Chuck, the one Dimple had said she would like. He seemed like an ordinary guy. No robe or collar. Maybe he was down to earth like Chaplain Sam. A rustle of pages whooshed through the room reminding Kate of aspen leaves ruffled by a breeze. When the page-turning stopped, an expectant calm descended on the group. 
But before Pastor Chuck could begin reading, Tara strutted from the back of the room to the second row, her high heels pounding the wood floors. Heads turned, and a ripple of whispers trailed her miniskirt. Kate blinked. She had no idea Tara was in the building or that churchgoers dressed that way. She looks like I did when I was trying to hook up with John's, Kate thought. Mike set his guitar on a stand and followed the other musicians into the congregation. Kate tried to conceal her surprise when he passed the second row to sit beside her instead of Tara. Uh-oh. Trouble was brewing, and she was right in the middle of it. The pastor cleared his throat and waited until he had their attention. Our scripture passage today reminds us of the goodness and greatness of God. Tune your ears and your hearts to what he wants to say to you today. Tara stood, ran her hands down her hips to smooth her skirt, and stepped out of the pew. She stomped to the rear of the sanctuary, again heads turned, even the pastors. Mike was seated at the end of the pew, yet she wedged in beside him. He scooted toward Kate, who moved closer to Laura, who clenched her Bible like it was an anchor in the midst of a storm. And maybe it was. Finally, when the bench no longer shook, Kate released the breath she'd held throughout the episode. How could she tune into the sermon like the pastor suggested? Or tune into God's voice like Dimple had said, with Mike's hip and arm pressed against hers and Tara's foot swinging a furious rhythm on the other side of his Levi's? Prison services had never been this distracting, even in the midst of clanging metal doors and endless directives over the loudspeakers. Chapter 13 Pastor Chuck closed his Bible. Let's pray. Mike stood, worked his way past Tara's bare knees, and walked to the front. Though Kate bowed her head, she could feel hate emanating from the end of the pew. Should she try to defend her innocence to Tara after the service? Would it do any good? What if things got nasty? Could she keep from ripping the jealous woman's hair out of her head and snapping off her fake fingernails? Kate chewed at her lip. Better not chance a blow-up at church. The moment the service ended, she turned her back on Tara and followed Laura out the door toward the parking lot. Kate! Kate Nielsen, wait! Certain it wasn't Tara's voice, she heard Kate turned to see Dimple Forbes hurrying toward her. The older woman grabbed her hands. I'm so glad to see you again. Kate clasped Dimple's gnarly fingers. I'm happy to see you too, Dimple with a Y, Louise Forbes. Dimple chortled. You've got a good margarine to remember that. Kate held back a smirk. Dimple touched Kate's cheek. What happened to your beautiful face? Oh, clumsiness. I tripped on the path the night I arrived at the ranch. But my scrapes are healing quite a bit already. I'm glad to hear that, said Dimple. Are you enjoying the Whispering Pines? I love it. I knew you would. Everybody there is really nice. Well, almost everybody, Kate thought. And the ranch is so pretty. I love waking up to sunshine and mountain air and the birds singing around my cabin. Laura, who had been visiting with a young couple, joined them. And we love having Kate at the ranch. Kate noticed Tara and Mike in the midst of a heated discussion on the far side of the parking lot. She felt sorry for Mike, but she was glad she wasn't the recipient of Tara's wrath this time. 
Dimple took Laura's hand. Would you and Mike and Kate be able to come to my place for lunch today? I'd love to, but I can't stay long. Our guest season opened yesterday, so I need to make sure everything goes okay today. Dimple turned to Kate. How about you? I'd enjoy that. Thank you. Lunching with Mike would make things worse with Tara, but how could she refuse when she was dependent on Laura for a ride? I can't speak for Mike, Laura's voice trailed off as all three women turned toward the arguing couple. Mike's arms were folded high on his chest as if shielding himself from Tara's long fingernails that jabbed at his ribs. I don't know what that is about. Laura had a worried look on her face. But he might not be very sociable when it's over. His own mother didn't know why Tara was mad? Kate put on her sunglasses. Temple placed her hands on her waist. That brat needs a good paddling, her voice cracked. She's always causing him grief. Kate gawked at the little woman. Dimple's blue eyes blazed and her jaw jutted. I'm going to go break it up. If that hussy gets snippy with me, she'll be sorry. Before Laura or Kate could stop her, Dimple started across the parking lot as fast as her arthritic feet could propel her, her fists and her braids swinging. Conversations stopped. Kate felt for Mike certain he'd rather not be the center of attention during an argument. She couldn't hear Dimple's words, but she could see the relief on Mike's face as he wrapped her hand around his arm and walked her toward Laura's SUV. Tara watched the two for a moment, then flipped an obscene gesture at the crowd and climbed into her canary-yellow Hummer. With a blast of the horn, she roared out of the parking lot and onto the highway. You may have seen this on Facebook. I wrote this for today and called it The Day After the Election. Our votes are cast, the campaign stopped, and it was clearly classless. But if you're hopeful won or lost, be glad the campaign's passed us. The candidates have widely shown their characters marasmus, and now it's time to move ahead. Be thrilled this show has passed us. My fish have died from caustic ads, and so did my dog Rover. So for my other loved ones croak, I'm pleased this time is over. We know the rivals all too well, their honor now diminished. And whether your choice won or lost, this rabid mess is finished. (laughs) Those are my sentiments. (laughs) Although it's kind of a negative thing. So we're going to go, we're going to turn to Eugene Shea. I'm going to read two from him. It's in his book, The Last Caboose. For those who remember what a caboose was. This is called Snapshots of Americana. Million cars on the road today, all going where we want to go. Should stay home on a holiday. Million cars on the road today. Taking vacation the hard way. We'll get there, but it's oh so slow. Million cars on the road today, all going where we want to go. So take me out to the ball game, for I want to see it for real. Watching TV is not the same, so take me out to the ball game. Whole inning late, the crowd's to blame. Beer spilled down my back, no big deal. So take me out to the ball game, for I want to see it for real. 
Do your duty. Get out and vote. Choose from donkey or pachyderm, but I'll vote for the billy goat. Do your duty. Get out and vote. Our third-party spoiler of note will make all the Puritans squirm. Do your duty. Get out and vote. Choose from donkey or pachyderm. Are we having any fun yet? A thousand voices screaming, yes. Louder, band, loud as you can get. Are we having any fun yet? Crashed on the floor, our two drunks met. Wine down my front, my clothes a mess. Are we having any fun yet? A thousand voices screaming, yes. That's kind of a mix of election and, uh, and the Cubs winning the World Series. And this last one, also from Eugene, wanted to end a little more positively. Little things. Don't grasp in vain for rainbows. The crocus beside your path's a gem. Appreciate the smaller joys in life as there are so many more of them. Now, that's a better way to end. (laughs) And I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.